Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my new podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. Well, friends, it would appear that we have finally arrived at the moment we've all been waiting for, either eagerly or fearfully or more likely both, through month after month of nearly unfathomable trials and tribulations, through a wretched pandemic that's taken the lives of 229,000 Americans and a brutal recession that's put some 40 million Americans out of work, through a garish spate of police brutality inflicted mostly on unarmed black men, and both the peaceful racial justice protests and rioting and looting that it unleashed through the epic void-creating losses of John Lewis, Chadwick Boseman, Little Richard, Eddie Van Halen, Kobe Bryant, and of course, the notorious RBG. The last of these triggering the rushed and craven addition to the Supreme Court of a far-right jurist whose hostility to the Affordable Care Act and Roe v. Wade are a matter of horrifying public record, through an unprecedented and systematic campaign of voter suppression, and through the routine and relentless outrageous depredations of the grasping wannabe autocrat in the Oval Office. Through all of that and more, we have arrived at last at an election day that essentially everyone on the left and the right regards as bearing the terrible weight of truly existential stakes. Yes, friends, we are finally here in the very location that inspired this podcast in the first place. Having fought our way through hell and high water, we are now at the edge of Armageddon or the starting point for what will be a long slog towards revival and reclamation. The destination known to those less wordy and windy than your host as Election Day. And who better to spend that day with than my dear friend Nicole Wallace, who sums up our situation thus. The state of our union is on the line on the line in every single possible way you could think of everything. The Trump era has created its share of political media stars, but none whose emergence has been more emphatic or more welcome than that of Nicole Wallace. When we first met, Nicole was a communications hand in the George W. Bush White House, and I liked her enormously from the jump. She was smart and charming and human and humane, and unlike some of her colleagues, firmly rooted in the reality-based community. We got to know each other better in the 2008 presidential cycle when she was a senior advisor on John McCain's campaign, and I was covering both sides of that race closely, really obsessively, for New York Magazine. And then we got to know each other really well in the aftermath of the campaign, when I was writing a book about it that would ultimately be titled Game Change and striving to get to the bottom of how the hell Sarah Palin had become McCain's running mate, and tell the story as close to the bone as I could of what happened next, of Palin's astonishing blink-of-an-eye transformation from supernova to national joke. But it was only after Game Change, the book and then the movie, in which Nicole was played brilliantly by Sarah Paulson, that she and I became true friends, spending hours together on the set of Morning Joe, on my show for Bloomberg and MSNBC with all due respect, and then on her own show, Deadline White House, once the bigwigs at MSNBC wised up and realized what a rare and invaluable commodity they had on their hands. A brilliant and fearless and fun and funny host, with enormous reserves of political and national security experience, and one who knew her way around and was deeply sourced in the Republican universe, but wasn't remotely captive to it, who had no interest, in other words, in being part of the cult of Trump, who saw it for what it was, and was at once disgusted by it and recognized and could articulate the dangers that it posed to the party she once loved and to the country. As regular viewers of Deadline White House know, the conversations that Nicole and I have on air are really just extensions of a running dialogue we are having all the time in texts and emails and phone calls at all hours of the day and night, as we attempt, however lamely but gamely, to wrap our heads around the insanely disorienting and deeply disturbing shit we never imagined we'd see play out on the national stage, but that is, in many ways, the defining feature of the Trump era, where rarely does a day go by when something doesn't happen that makes us both scream at the top of our lungs, WTF. 
This episode of this podcast is inevitably just another incarnation of that ongoing conversation as we two pals contemplate the end of this bone-rattling and spirit-sapping campaign and what the alternative conclusions of it might mean for America in the days ahead. How tough will it be for Joe Biden to govern post-Trump America if he wins, as the polls and most of the other available empirical evidence suggest that he will? What will it mean for all of us if somehow, after all this, Donald Trump is reelected? And in either case, how do we even begin to make sense of what has happened to America over the past four years? God knows that neither Nicole nor I have really good or definitive answers to any of these questions, but we definitely have some thoughts that we are delighted to share as we welcome the fabulous Nicole Wallace to Helen High Water. Nicole, what the hell is going on by the background? Now I'll tell you. So, so we jumped on at the end of reading. Uh, Liam was reading the New York Times because I wasn't in there to find his book. Oh, this is my dog. <laughs> I think the dog has just jumped up here with us. And I think there's some Halloween themed writing and math going on. My, my, my son is in there fending for himself. Thanks for being on here. I like the notion that we start this in a very kind of informal way. There are a couple things that are true. We're <laughs> recording this on the Friday before Election Day, for, in case anybody wants to know, because I'm going to spend the next 72 hours flying around and trying to get to like nine or 10 states in three days um, on a chartered aircraft so I can try to like take the temperature of as much of the country as I can in the hours before Election Day, which is something I normally like to do with candidates, but it's kind of mm -hmm. hard to do now. Yeah. So I'm like on the run for the next 72 hours. So we're talking on Friday. This will appear on Election Day. That's the context in which the conversation is taking place. The other reality is that I have done almost no preparation for this kind of intentionally because I really want the conversation to feel like, you know, this is where we are, you and me right yeah. now, as we get close to this day. We all know election day is a fiction, you know, 82 million people have voted as of now. Yeah. Election day has been a rolling thing for now a month and a half, but it's still the case that election day is going to be a thing. And we don't know what a kind of a thing it's going to be. So I ask you, like, what are you, as we sit here now for a podcast that's going to appear on the morning of Election Day, what are you imagining Election Day is going to be like to, to, as, a, as a citizen, as a, as a human, as a, a journalist covering it? What, what are you thinking right now? What's in your mind's eye of what Election night, Day and Night are going to be like? I have this deep anxiety that, um, not that we've missed it again, but that uh, the service that we think we've done by trying to cover the hell out of the Trump story and the Trump presidency. My tiny piece of that is I think I'm really sensitive to where all these norms have been not just busted, but, you know, shredded. The norms have been knocked down. Desecrated. Yeah. Yeah. But desecrated, defiled, sh the shit on and then ripped up into a million pieces and scattered across into the winds. I mean, it's just that's that's how bad it is. Right. And as you know, because you've had most of these conversations with me, um, having worked in the White House on the day of September 11th and everything that ensued, I'm particularly sensitive to all the obliteration of norms around our national security traditions, for lack of a better word. And so I constantly think about the frailty of all this stuff. And now I think about the frailty of how we vote, just how fragile it is. The Trump's up tweeting at three in the morning about how the Supreme Court's going to handle it. I think the right did an adequate job sort of getting in our heads and fucking with us. And, and, you know, are we deranged? Are we hyperbolic about him? I don't think we were intense enough in our scrutiny of just how animalistic he was in trying to destroy the government he runs. Right. And I'm really haunted by the fact that we didn't push hard enough. We thought fact checking was adequate. It was totally inadequate. He wasn't telling lies. He is a lie. The whole thing is a lie. And now the big lie is the pandemic. And because he conditioned his base 
to believe in an alternate reality. And, you know, Maggie Haberman has made this point. There's no hidden Trump strategy to destroy right. the country. It's all out right. in the open. Yep. And, you know, Kellyanne Conway on, on week one talked about an alternate truth. Yeah. They managed to convince 40% of the electorate that there is a second truth. There is no second truth. There's just no alternate. Nine million people have COVID. 237,000 are dead. And these people don't give a fuck. They don't care that 500,000 could be dead by January and Trump will be president win or lose next Tuesday. So my anxieties are mostly around, you know, whether somehow we contributed to not sounding the alarms in a way that broke through to that 40%. But maybe that's a self-focused concern. Maybe, maybe there was something in the conditioning to the lying that was ungettable. Well, I think that's, you know, sure. Yes. I mean, I, it's weird because, of course, I feel like we have been and some others of us have been you know, shouting from the, the the ramparts, you know, for four years, really an uncomfortable position for me. I mean, it's like I, you know, I, I wrote thousands of columns, right? So it wasn't like my opinions about policy were ever a hidden. And when people say you're liberal, I'd be like, yeah, I, like I have views about taxes. I have views about trade. Like you can go back and look them all up. But it wasn't like when I covered, you know, George W. Bush's administration, it wasn't like I was standing up and calling him a war criminal every day or like saying that George W. Bush should be like, you know, he was a threat to- No, him, I, I would have remembered that. Yeah, right. I mean, it, was, it just didn't happen, right? My preference was to be a reporter and an analyst mm -hmm. who had a point of view and didn't try to hide my opinions about things. So it was weird to have to take this posture in this four years of, no, this is different. This is not, I'm not being a partisan. I'm saying this person's unfit for the presidency and he's dangerous. And that's not a partisan assertion. Has nothing to do with him being Republican. Right. But I agree with you. I think I saw on your show the other day, maybe Tim Miller saying that if the world was right, like the notion that Trump is going around the country holding events that risk giving people the virus and all the people who those people meet the virus should be a front page lead story of every newspaper in the country every single day. It should be the top story and everybody's run down on cable. It should be the only thing we're talking about. We have said for four years that Trump doesn't care about uniting the country. All he cares about is his base. He now is like, I don't even care about my base's lives. Right. All I care about is winning. And if it means that every single person that was at a rally of mine in this last 10 days, as long as they stay alive long enough to vote for me, I don't fucking care. If right. they all get COVID and die, right. I don't care. I just right. want their, I want enough votes to put me in a position to either win this thing or steal this thing. And if everybody gets sick and dies, I don't give a shit. And the fact that it's not the lead story in every cable hours rundown on every front page, on every digital, every website is a little fucked up because it's that fucked up what he's doing. I totally agree. And we actually, we lead with the COVID super spreaders yeah. and, and then we led with the Omaha hypothermia. And yesterday we broke in and did the um, heat stroke in Florida. Here's why. When you are in the presidential package, you're on a radio with your advanced team. You know exactly what's happening. And George Bush used to see people, you know, I mean, Florida's hot. It's a hot place to campaign. He would sort of, you know, point out if he, if he thought someone looked like they needed water and say, bring some water up to the third row. It is so abnormal to have such wanton disregard for the well-being of anyone. It's also the most notable break from his 2016 campaign, where in these final days and weeks, he'd look out at the forgotten men and women. And I think it was the circus that had that Don Jr. interview where Don Jr. described his dad as a blue collar billionaire, right? Yeah. yeah. And that was the bond. It was us against them. It was this anti-elitism case that they made against Hillary and the media. 
And this is him against everyone, including the forgotten men and women. This yeah. is Trump, you know, fuck the elites, but fuck you too. I don't care if you get COVID. So in the, in the face of all that, we wonder whether we've done enough. And in these closing days, you know, I asked you what you were, what you were thinking about what election day is going to be like. And you came back to that question, which is, have we done enough? Um, and I don't think there's going to be an adequate answer to that question in some ways. Um, yeah. Do you think that Joe Biden, as you watch this as a journalist, and I think more importantly in this case, someone who has been involved in campaign politics to the extent you have, are you watching the way that Joe Biden is campaigning and his campaign is closing this election? And are you seeing it and thinking, feeling confidence or are you nervous? I think that people miss some of the Biden story. Biden was left for dead by the Democratic elite. They didn't like Joe Biden. I think some of the very progressive elites liked Elizabeth Warren's polish and thoroughness. Um, Joe Biden really is the candidate of the Democratic grassroots. I mean, the voters of, of South Carolina, African-American men and women, old and young, propelled him to victory. And then, as you know, he went on and won states he'd never set a toe in, and he didn't have a dollar, so he wasn't advertising either. He truly is this candidate selected by the Democratic primary voters. I have watched him exceed expectations news cycle after news cycle after news cycle. I have watched him string together pretty killer speeches and moments when expectations were so low. I see a lot in Joe Biden that I understood to be the connection that George W. Bush had with voters that Joe Biden has. The media focuses on the gaffes, the Democratic elites, even Obama people said, you know, oh, Uncle Joe should leave. He is as, you know, go out on top. Obama loved him. I mean, I'm sure you heard more of this than I did. You have better sources in the Democratic Party than I do. But I have watched him restrain the impulse to engage when his son and family were attacked. I have watched him rise to the occasion when they build speeches as major speeches. I've watched him put one foot in front of the other and hit single after single and score time and time again and sustain one of the biggest and steadiest leads in modern general election history. Yeah. And I think the, the untold story of this campaign is just how um, disciplined of a candidate he is personally and just how strategically advanced and low-key his campaign really is. And I'm not sure what the dynamics are in the Democratic Party in terms of why that story isn't told. I don't know if it's just the love affair with the Obama guys that that campaign was so good and so glitzy yeah. and Obama was so good that by comparison, nobody looks that great. I'm not sure why that story isn't told, but I think that to run to restore the soul of the country only works when it's been destroyed by someone like Donald Trump. But the reason he's running ended up being a reason that resonated with people. And he has made very few missteps. And you know, Trump wanted to run against a senile guy. Trump sounds crazy. Yeah. I mean, Trump wanted to run against a guy whose you know, addict son had corrupted the family. There, there's a, a whole machinery ready and willing to take that up. It just didn't stick. And so I think that not only has Joe Biden met the moment, I think he's exceeded the expectations that Democrats had for him when he became the unlikely nominee of their party and really not the chosen one of the Democratic elite. And I think that the fact that his campaign has consistently kept expectations low while meeting and exceeding them at every point is one of the untold stories of the campaign. The reality is for them, they had to run this campaign, the Biden people, in the face of unprecedented, unpredictable things for which there were no playbook. Obviously, COVID, right. the first among them, they have a 70, a mid-70s candidate 
who was in the high risk group for getting a deadly disease that you right. had to keep alive while also trying to beat Donald Trump and do it at a time when you couldn't campaign in a normal way. And and they navigated all of that with extraordinary discipline and poise and aplomb, I think. And and, you know, I mean, look, if he loses, you know, we'll all, we'll all look back and talk about all the things that they missed and the things they did yeah. wrong. And, and that will be appropriate. But right now I look at it and I think, you know, Jen O'Malley Dillon arrived in that office. She became the campaign manager. They had just shut the campaign down, closed a headquarters down that would never open again. And she had to go from the transition of building a, a, a nomination candidacy to a general election candidacy, staff up from a couple hundred to over a thousand without ever being able to meet a single person in face to face, do it all over Zoom. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing managerial challenge apart from the strategic challenges. And they somehow, you know, again, to your point, as of right now, what they can point to is this very long, very large, very stable lead that they've kept. And I think, you know, they deserve a, a kind of credit that they haven't gotten for having managed all of this chaos and unpredictability and put him, even if he loses, it turns out, they put him in a position to win. And and that's, you know, in the Super Bowl, that's that's what the coaching staff, that's what you get credit for. You can't play the game for your players, but you can put your you put your team in a position to win. And I think they've done that for Joe Biden. Yeah. And and I think, look, I notice things about campaigns having been on campaigns. They're a campaign that doesn't leak. They're a campaign that doesn't backbite. Right. Right. And I'm sure there were debates inside that campaign about, about everything, because as you just said, no one's ever done this before, about you know how often to keep him off the road, about um, how many interviews to do, about who to pick for vice president. And it is usually the case that the campaign that leaks less and that manages to keep these decisions, you know, inside the tent is usually the campaign that wins. So, you know, I also think they they made the only bet they could make. I mean, Trump is running on herd immunity. I think Trump is indifferent to death and suffering. I think the American people are really wrestling with loneliness and despair and fear for their economic security and fear for their families. And um, and grief about about the pre-pandemic lives that they've lost. And I think Trump has taken all that despair and and shoved it into his disgusting cesspool of making it about him and, and, and using it and exploiting it. But I think Biden made the only bet you can make. The alternative to that is to heal the sickness, to deal with the pandemic, to um, get through to the other side, which is relief from all those things. I, I think if he loses, it's not that we reevaluate all their strategic decisions and wonder if he made a mistake. If you're running against Trump, who's just, you know, fuck it, let everyone get this thing, Regeneron, you know, made me feel like Superman. I, I don't know that there was, I mean, the, the choice is, is sanity, is what Dr. Fauci is advising, is what Governor Cuomo did, which is try to try to get through the worst of it and then go back and build back in, in a healthy and safe way. So I just think as a campaign and as a candidate, he's been constantly underestimated and he has constantly exceeded, arguably low expectations, but he's constantly exceeded them. It's a very good time to take a little break. We'll come back in a second. We're going to listen to some advertisements, which is how we pay the bills around here at Helen Highwater. And then we'll rejoin Nicole Wallace and take a little, we're going to go back a little bit. A bunch of questions <laughs> I have to ask you about the past that, uh, that I think are the relevant. The older I get, our, the more blurry the past gets. That are, <laughs> but they're relevant to our present <laughs> and our future. So we're going to come back and talk about those in one second. Sounds good. And we're back with Nicole Wallace. Um, so I, I just said we were going to talk about the past, and and I think the past is relevant to the present and also to our to the future, which we'll get to. 
the past I specifically want to talk about is yours. Um, you know, I just had Mike Murphy and Stuart Stevens on the on the podcast a couple weeks ago and had a really interesting conversation about about their relationship to republicanism now, having lived through this whole Trump trauma. And I want to talk to you about that and how you how you've experienced it yourself in this sort of a similar vein. But I as a starting point, I ask you this, like you were started out being wanted to be a journalist like me uh, and went to Northwestern just like I did. You were a grad student there, I think, in the in the J mm -hmm. school. Um, I was an undergrad. Uh, and yet you ended up in politics. You're also a, a gal from Northern California, not a place where there's a whole lot of republicanism. <laughs> and you ended up kind of drifting away from journalism and drifting towards politics and Republican politics in particular. Just just explain that. How did that happen? <laughs> like, why did you end up in politics and why did you end up on the Republican side? So I was in Sacramento and um, I actually interviewed with a Democrat and a Republican the same week. I interviewed with- Chris This is after, co after college, you mean? So after college, after grad school, I went to Northwestern. I was a yeah. local TV reporter and it was a great experience. I had the scanner. I had the camera. I learned to white balance. I shot my own stuff. Um, I was up on the I-5 corridor. So I um, did a lot of drugs are run up I-5. I did a lot of DEA cases. I did traffic accidents. I did feel good. So I was a local news reporter and wanted to get to the next market. And so I wanted to get to Sacramento and thought I should sort of hedge my bets and see if there was a PR job in politics. And so because it was the state capitol, I interviewed with Cruz Bustamante, who was a Democrat, and Bill Leonard, who was the Assembly Republican leader. And the Republican hired me. And at the time, I was a, like a deputy communications director for the Assembly Republican Caucus. And Bill Leonard was a lovely, lovely guy. I stayed in touch with him for many, many years. And um, it was sort of the rough and tumble Sacramento politics, post Willie Brown, Pete Wilson, um, but a pre-Schwarzenegger uh, kind of window. Yeah. Um, and I saw the Republicans really on their way down. It was where I met Steve Schmidt. Um, and it was where I saw that Pete Wilson's really hostile and aggressive immigration policies were not the kind of Republican party I wanted to be a part of. So I ended up going from California Republican politics to George W. Bush, um, who I remember just feeling drawn to, but I, I didn't get directly there. I, I, I went through Florida to work for Jeb Bush. Right. My path to the Bush White House wound its way through um, the Florida recount. Right. And then back into um, the George W. Bush communications offices where um, that's probably where I first met you when I was in the Bush White House, yeah. or maybe on the reelect in, in 03 and 04. Yeah. But I wasn't ever drawn to Republican policies and ideas. I was drawn to the idea of helping people get their message out, of dealing with reporters. I'd been a reporter. I knew that sometimes it was just lost in translation. Um, I think that changed after I met George W. Bush and, and Jeb Bush and started to really appreciate their policies. But I, I remember even with Jeb Bush, just just trying to help him explain them. To, and the Florida State Press Corps is really smart. They're really tough. They're really good. It was great practice for ending up in Washington. But I didn't come to it really ideologically, certainly not in the beginning and probably not for years. It well, is the case that like having been in the middle of the Bush White House as you were, you know, that you ended up in a very controversial period of time working for a very controversial president, one who was seen, you know, as being 
you know, people forget the way that the left attacked George W. Bush at the time. And still, no doubt. you know, no you doubt. still see it. Even now, there are people who won't, don't want to forgive you. And I put quotes around that, forgive you for having yeah. been ever part of that. So I kind of asked this question, you know, do you think you ended up embroiled in it ideologically because you ended up working for the president and the president's pursuing conservative policies, which George W. Bush did. Mm -hmm. And then you ended up working, you know, for John McCain and there was the Sarah Palin thing. Mm -hmm. All of that happened while you were at the very height of yeah. Republican politics. So I guess the question that I, the question that comes out of that to me is this, you know, Stewart's book is called, It Was All a Lie, mm -hmm. which is like, I was part of this thing at the highest levels. And now I look back on it and think, you know, I was complicit in building a fucked up racist, white grievance-driven party that ultimately gave birth to Donald Trump. But I had a part in this. Mm -hmm. The nightmare we're now living, I am not free of guilt. I'm not free of sin. I was part of this project that led to this place. And I, kinda, I guess I ask you that question as you kind of, as you know, you're now distant from it. You're now on doing journalism and you're now obviously, you know, you feel the way we feel about Donald Trump. But do you look back on your time in Republican politics and feel like that you were in some way part of a trajectory that eventually led to this president who you object to in such profound ways. Of course. And I think that the work of making peace with it is I have nothing but reverence for the president that I worked for. George W. Bush was shattered by 9-11 and everything he did afterward was to avoid having that happen again, um, not just on his watch, but ever. And I think the fact that Obama continued a lot of those policies is proof, not that they were right or wrong, but that you were looking at shitty and shittier options um, to protect the country from the threats that gathered and, and shattered us on 9-11. John McCain and George W. Bush are not perfect. Um, I do not regret working for either of them. But I know that George W. Bush has talked about the other threats that were gathering while he was president of racism and isolationism and nativism. And I think they smacked him in the face when he tried with John McCain and Ted Kennedy to press for comprehensive immigration reform and was pushed back by his own party. Right. Most time I ever spent at the border was with George W. Bush in 05 and 06 when he was pushing immigration reform. And I remember really realizing um, what the party was then, that they were so fucking racist. They wouldn't contemplate comprehensive immigration reform, which George W. Bush believed at the time was the only way to reform immigration, that you couldn't send everybody back. And I remember the fights. I remember them in Josh Bolton's office. He was the chief of staff with um, his own staff. And, and I remember people pushing these policies where everyone in the country illegally, which at the time was, the estimates were 11 to 19 million would have to go back. And I remember sitting there saying, that's not what Bush believes in. That's right. not what he thinks should happen or will happen. And I, and I remember seeing, it wasn't just in our own party, it was in our own administration, the resistance to comprehensive immigration reform. And, and that might've been the first time that I started to think about what I'd been a part of. So I think they manifested themselves most visibly in the fight around immigration policy and politics. And yeah, you look at the fact that Bush was where Kennedy and McCain were in 05 and 06. Trump won by being so diametrically opposed to that. That was a sign of, of how far Bush was from the base of the Republican Party on that question of immigration. I think 
you know, we all have to go through our own process of making peace with the foreign policy decisions. And for any family that lost someone in Iraq or Afghanistan, they get to have the last word on all those decisions. And it's not right to continue to defend decisions that were made. I think people pay the ultimate price on the battlefield and in injuries that change the trajectory of their lives. And, and it's just not right to still um, defend those things and, and their families had sacrificed so much. And that's something that we all carry. And I think if people are honest, it's a pretty um, defining thing. And I think it contributed to Trump's wins in ways that we should all try to examine and understand. Um, do I think it was all a lie? I mean, I don't think that people that were in it are necessarily the best judges of that. I mean, I think everyone has to try to make it right in their own way. And um, I try to tell the truth and I try to deal with my remorse in a non sort of self-absorbed way. But I think Sarah Palin as a um, canary in the mine is instructive. You know, she is a more prepared, smarter Donald Trump. Um, But that is exactly what he tapped into when he won the nomination in 16, the exact kinds of things and sentiments that she saw titillated her crowds. And you were on the trail. I mean, you wrote, yeah. you wrote the book about it. I mean, that is what she was and who she was. And that's what people were responding to. And that was the best early warning system for what was to come in Donald Trump. Right. Did you see, I mean, I, I funnily, I, I remember this so vividly. This is a thing that you will remember as soon as I mention it, right? Which is the, and I went back and watched it and maybe- We'll even play it on this program, although it's a little <laughs> embarrassing. Um, well, okay, let's let's do that. We know now that Sarah Palin can give one hell of a speech. She's she's a natural, and that's no mean feat. We don't know yet, and we won't know until you guys allow her to take questions. You know, can she answer tough questions about you know domestic policy, foreign but I mean, policy? Like, those like from who? From you? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I from me. Or, or, <laughs> yeah, who cares? No offense. Uh, who cares? I, mean, I think the American people care. I think the American people want to hear. Just go right. I mean, who, <laughs> who cares if she can talk to Time Magazine? No, no, no. She can talk to the American she, people. They want to say, how am I going to? American people, she can answer them, that they, question. American people need to know, just like they need to know it about Joe Biden, that Barack Obama. Talk to you? Not that she can talk to me. I, just, I don't but get she it. Knows I'm going she, back to bed. That she, knows how to, that she knows things about the domestic and foreign policy that right. the vice president but, needs but, to know. But, but here's the thing. I mean, the It doesn't media, matter if it's me, me, but somebody's got to ask the, the question. Media she's got to answer this, the media did something to this family that I've never seen before in my life. And I think she took the stage last night and, and you know, she made her own points. She she put this discussion and this race and this convention in her own terms. And she didn't do it by talking with all due respect to people like you. So there you are with Jay Carney at the Republican convention on Morning Joe, <laughs> fiercely basically saying to Jay Carney as he's standing there kind of doing the traditional journalistic thing of saying, you know, she has to answer questions talking about Sarah Palin. You going, who? Who does she have to answer questions to? You? You know, you sound like in that moment, like Republicans, a lot of Republicans sound now. You were like, I'm surprised you didn't call him fake news at that point. You were like, you know, it's an early precursor of it. And you were still at that point fighting in Sarah Palin's corner. Yeah. You had met her only a few days earlier, right? So yeah, that's but I knew a- she didn't know where any of the countries were. Right. So in some ways, we were trying to um, sort of deal with the notion that she was ever going to be, you know, giving daily press conferences. And it was a combination of... Um, knowing where that campaign was heading, which was that Sarah Palin would not be engaging on a daily basis with totally. the likes of Jake Carney because she couldn't. But, 
Um, and and yeah, I was still um, a defender of the ticket, which was right. But that's yeah, that's but that's part of my point. My point is sort of like you all had just you know you had had been given the job of 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 working for her, defending her you know, as, as the staff person who was going to run her life effectively in terms of her relationship with the media in particular, you had met her not more than maybe a week before that. Um, some of the things that would ultimately disturb you and ultimately lead to your alienation from her, um, like before the campaign even ended, you know, were already in your head at that point. But I, my, my point about it is to say that what well, is the question I want to ask, which you kind of started to answer just now, which is, like, it's one thing to very quickly come to the conclusion that she was not prepared. She's the new governor of Alaska. The former mayor of Wasilla, you know, it was stunning to a lot of you and your colleagues when you realized how little she knew about the world, right? But it was also, this was the morning after she gave that amazing red light performance in Minneapolis, right? And that morning you were dealing from a position of political strength and trying to say, you know, maybe she's not like other candidates. Maybe she's never going to engage with you, Jay Carney, in the way that John McCain does. But she just gave a speech that connected with millions of people and it was powerful, right? From that point on, Things spun out of control and went downhill rapidly. And the question I really want to ask you is whether you you learn you came to learn quickly that she was not prepared to be vice president, let alone president. You came to learn that she was psychologically unstable and emotionally unstable. But did you start to see in real time that the thing that now seems clear, which is that she represented this nativist, xenophobic, uh, culturally grievance-driven populist part of the party did you see that in real time where you were like this woman's not just unprepared but she's potentially dangerous and she represents a thing in the party that i think is bad did you see that in real time or only in retrospect that she was kind of meaningful in that sense so two two things one i was not fighting with jay carney from a position of strength i was fighting with jay carney from a position of abject terror because in preparing for the speech that Sarah Palin hit out of the park, um, I took lines out of the speech because I argued to Matt Scully, who was the brilliant speechwriter who wrote that speech, who deserves an enormous amount of credit for finding enough of her voice to make it work so perfectly for her. There were just things she, she, she didn't, she, that couldn't be explained to her. And it, it wasn't that she was stupid. She she is not stupid. She wasn't stupid. She was staggeringly uninformed. And my job was to constantly, constantly reassure her that that was not her fault. She knew how uninformed she was, and she was mortified by it. And she fell asleep every night with stacks of note cards on her bed and highlighters, trying to make up for the gap in her knowledge, which had become apparent to her. So I was sensitive to what she had revealed to me, which was a feeling of shame for not understanding the nuances of policy. We did not feel that we had done anything great at the convention. She had done something great at the convention. We were determined to try to set her up for success. But I remember Mark Salter saying her first interview has to be Russert or 60. And I said, you're out of your fucking mind. She cannot do either of those things. And I thought that a network interview would be a little more uh, broad and a little less right. sort of policy specific. And so I knew John Banner really well. We invited Charlie Gibson to Wasilla. And I think I, I won't speak for John or Charlie, but I think we all <laughs> remain somewhat scarred from the experience. But did I see the 
attraction to nativism and racism. I, I did not after after the convention experience, but what I saw was her her trauma, and what I saw was her shock at the sudden thrusting onto center stage of American politics. And what I saw was the family's trauma. I mean, it was the Saturday or the Sunday before Minneapolis started. She had to reveal that that her daughter was pregnant. And I just saw the family going through this just really traumatic sort of public foray onto the political stage. And and I was more aware of her, her being really, really, really uninformed and really, really, really embarrassed about it. Right. And, but you, but you now see again, that, and that's a really good answer in the sense that it reminds people, I think, that huh, all of these larger things, these larger dynamics and forces and connections that we all like, you know, all of us who are trying to be thoughtful about politics that we draw later on. If you're in the the heat, the moment of a campaign, you're working on a campaign, you're covering a campaign. A lot of this stuff is not. You see it very much through a glass darkly in the moment. You're just trying to get through the mm-hmm. day. You're not thinking about like the large forces of nativism, populism, and blah, blah, blah. You're just like, <laughs> how do I get through it? But but it is, I think, the case that you saw some stuff. And this is where I think that I, I want to just kind of land this part of this conversation. I think if you saw the reaction to her, I remember thinking the drama of her inadequacies, the unfairness in some ways of putting her in the position she was put in, mm-hmm. her failings, her her emotional issues, her her intellectual deficiencies, all of that was incredibly compelling to watch unfold. And her magnetism, her charisma, the mm-hmm. connection she had with special needs kids, all of those things, that jumble of things that she was, those were all the things that were up close. Mm-hmm. And then there were these larger things that she was connected to. And again, as I say, you couldn't necessarily see those in the moment, but you later kind of started to get it. But I will say that the one thing that was clear in the moment, you know, especially given John McCain and the way that he handled, you know, the questions around, you know, Obama, was he a Muslim Mm -hmm. in that campaign? She was palling around with terrorists. She was all in on the Muslim shit. That's the story there. And people think back about that McCain moment where he, you know, that woman said he's a Muslim and McCain, you know, valiantly said, no, ma'am, he's a good American. We disagree about things. The whole point of that moment isn't that McCain just spoke truth to that woman and tried to bring her back to reality and, and knock down this crazy conspiracy theory about Obama was that the conspiracy theory was being peddled and propagated by his running mate. Right. Like that moment in the campaign was her running around the country, drawing bigger crowds than McCain and talking about Obama palling around with terrorists everywhere she went. So that when that woman walked, it was said that thing to John McCain that he responded to in this way that we now think of as noble. Mm-hmm. The reason he had to knock that woman down or be noble was because his own running mate was the one who was stirring up that shit in real time. That woman might have might have been at a Sarah Palin rally a day earlier when she walked into the McCain rally and said that thing. And in the Palin rally, if she'd said Obama's a Muslim, there would have been a giant standing ovation. And Sarah Palin would have loved to hear that. And so she could then walk over to the McCain rally and it was like, wait, ma'am, ma'am these views are not welcome here. Right. That's the, was the, that was the schizophrenia of the campaign in that moment. And that was the thing that you could see that Sarah Palin was connecting with a part of the Republican Party that was large and growing and animated and maybe larger and growing and more animated than the rest of the Republican Party. The part that was there for her had a lot more energy around it than the part that was there for, you know, John McCain. And it's even it's even bigger than that. He was shattered by the criticism. And it came to him in phone calls from people like Joe Biden and Ted Kennedy that John Lewis, who McCain revered, revered, yeah. Thought he was playing the race card from the bottom of the deck. He was shattered 
by that criticism. Shattered. Right. I remember right. sitting on the bus. I think we missed a flight because he was shattered by the attacks. And I remember sitting on the bus with Steve Schmidt and Mark Salter trying to figure out how to respond. And they were concerned about what you just articulated. What, not just what Sarah Palin was saying on the stump, but the way her crowds were reacting to what she was saying on the stump. And it was in that moment, sitting on the bus, that the Republican Party, I think, fractured irreparably. It fractured between McCain and Palin. He never, I think, sought to stand up to her on fanning the flames of racism because he saw the force behind it and what she was a vessel for what the party had become. And I never had a conversation with him after the fact because the wheels really came off and she lost her mind and I don't know, thought I bought her skirts and then took the skirts and her father had <laughs> Gucci shoes. I mean, the whole thing really kind of went to hell in a handbasket. So I, I never circled back to McCain and it, but, but Mark Salter is just out with, with his memoir of his life with, with McCain. And I think writes about it in a really profound way, but yeah, it, it was that stark and it was that simple. And it was this divide between these two people on the same ticket running to run the country together. Imagine that. Yeah. At that moment, the shattering of the Republican party on that bus is a good place to break. Cause I want to now talk about the future for, for all of us, not just the Republican party, but the future for all of us. But we're going to do that after we take this quick break. We'll be back with the last segment with Nicole Wallace, my dear friend, here on Hell and High Water. We've discussed the present. We've discussed the past. I'd like to now, like, throw our eyes a little bit towards the horizon line, right? Um, I mean, you made it, just now made an important point about uh, about the way in which Sarah Palin was a vessel, right? Mm -hmm. She was not a cause of the Republican Party becoming what it has become. She was a symptom. Mm -hmm. I still think one of the most fundamental questions, and this is going to throw forward to where we're going next, but is the question of, is Donald Trump a cause? You know, Donald Trump staged a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. You know, he took it hostage and now has, and has worked it and, and, and messed with it and made it this kind of degraded, defiled thing. The other side is Donald Trump's just a symptom. He's just like Sarah Palin, only he was more successful than Sarah Palin, took it further, got to be president, you know, et cetera, et cetera, but still is symptomatic of a deeper rot. So that's the question I start, I, I put to you now, which is, you know, Donald Trump cause or symptom. And depending on your answer, what does that bode for the future of the party as we go forward? Look, I think it's too clean, right? And any explanation that's clean is usually wrong. So I was obsessed with that doc where the guy ate McDonald's every day and, and ended up with every health. Um, Supersize me. Yeah. It's like that in a prison. It's like force feeding someone McDonald's. So Trump is the one spooning the shit into people's mouths and Fox News is making sure it all goes in and holding the lips closed to make sure you swallow all the grease. But the, the base was primed by the failures of the Republican Party and not just Bush and McCain, but of uh, Romney and Ryan to run on free trade that, that people in you know the Midwest felt like did nothing for them to run on a continuance of foreign policies that had become very unpopular. Mitt Romney ran as, as a guy whose foreign policy amounted to Russia as the single greatest geopolitical threat. Now, he happened to be right. But that didn't mean anything to people. People wanted the wars to end. They wanted the factories to reopen. And that was all a lie. But Trump took the lie and ran on it. He told people what they wanted to hear. And I think that 
the future is in the balance. I mean, I think the Republican Party is dead. I think, as I said, it died on that bus when the fracture between John McCain and Sarah Palin came down to one over over racism. And I don't want to jinx anything, but I think if Donald Trump loses and Joe Biden wins with this incredible coalition that includes a lot of Democrats, a lot of independents, and a lot of Republicans, it's incumbent on everyone who voted for him to guarantee his success. And I think what that means is that the Lincoln Project has to start telling the story about why expanding the court has been done at different times in our history. And they have to create this permission structure for the Biden coalition to stay and become the coalition form by which he governs. And so I think the quick fix era is over. I think it brought us here. And I think if Trump wins, it's a totally different question. We have to grapple with the fact that we're not the country that we thought we were. We're a country that's fine with herd immunity, which means one to two million dead Americans. Republican Party is no longer the party of pro-life. Republican Party will be responsible for stacking the Supreme Court in a way that pushes abortions back into closets. It means rich people will be able to have reproductive right. health care, but um, it, it just takes the country in a totally different direction, and we'll have to grapple with it. And um, I think part of the challenge of jobs like yours and mine is not getting ahead of the story, but yeah. you've pulled back the curtain on some of what's to come. I mean, Alex did that stunning interview with the um, militia groups and they are ready yeah. for a civil war, not because they imagined it or dreamt it or, or dreamed of it as little boys, but because Donald Trump has told them to be prepared for it. The only way, in my opinion, that Joe Biden can win is through fraud. So just to be clear, if Trump wins, then the election is not fraudulent. If Biden wins, then it is fraudulent. Absolutely. Does that mean you guys are gonna take to the streets and say, hell no, this is not a legitimate outcome? Yeah, well, I woke up free man this morning and on November 4th, I wake up a free man and if I feel I need to go overturn a fraudulent election, then nobody on earth is gonna hold me back. I feel that our country is more in danger from the domestic terrorists than we are from foreign enemies. The original Civil War has nothing on what's coming. I think if he wins, um, we're, we're in for a real reckoning, not just, I mean, the Republican Party will be gone, dead and buried, but of, of who we are as a country and what right. we are. We, we will be a country that can't do hard things. We can't put a mask on. That'll, that'll be considered too hard for us. So we'll be going for mass death in a pandemic. We'll be a country who, um, who is in a really different, I think, image than, than what a lot of us think and thought. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not really ready to grapple with everything that it means, but I think, I, I don't know that the choices have ever been starker than they are on Tuesday. For sure. And, and as I said, when we started out here, right? So recording on a Friday, the podcast comes out on a blind election morning and I, you're right. I think, you know, there's enough happening here that we don't need to get, you know, way ahead of the story. We want need to stay in the story, in the moment right now, because a lot is going on right now. I mean, the last few days before an election are always chaotic and always, I always find them incredibly exhilarating. Actually, I don't find this one exhilarating. I find it something <laughs> different. Scary. I really do. <laughs> Certainly it's nervy, you know, it's, yeah. it's much more, it's much more edgy and much more shot through with anxiety and fear and, and dread. And so I really wanted to ask you just because you mentioned Alex Wagner on the circus doing this interview with uh, a militia, a self-styled militia person in Georgia. Do you, as we sit here today, are you worried about violence on election day or in the immediate post-election period? Is that something that's in your mind right now? Civil unrest? 
I mean, I just, I, I think when people tell you they're prepared for civil war, we should listen to them. So it's not something I kind of sat around and, and thought, let me, let me add this. You know, I'm, I'm worried. To my list my, of worries. Right. My kids can be <laughs> fucked up from learning at home and not being in a classroom. I'm worried that, you know, my team never sees each other. And, and I, you know, at this two hour show, I'm, I'm worried, you know, about when I'm going to see my parents again. And then I thought, well, let me just worry about white militia groups in the South starting, or, or maybe right here in my name. You know, what do I know? I mean, I'm worried that we don't live in a, society that's as sort of open and transparent as we thought it was. And that Donald Trump has been speaking, um, he's not smart enough to speak in code. That's not what I'm suggesting. But that when he says stand by and stand back, that they hear something that, w- that we should all at least consider as a possibility. I'm, I'm not saying it's predictive of what's going to yeah, happen, yeah. but I just think it is possible that people have heard from him things that they have taken literally. And I think contemplating one, that, that that means he could win. And two, that that means there could be violence if he doesn't ask for there not to be, is right. just something to be on the lookout for. I mean, look, I am supposed to give a speech at a, at a woman's charity a week later. And I said, look, I, I think I'll be there, but right. if there's a civil war, I may have to reschedule. And she said, right. are you joking? I said, I hope so. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I yeah. don't think there will be, but I think when you, you look at Alex's interview, they have heard that, that if Donald yes. Trump loses, it's because it was Ill- illegitimate. Yes. Now, Donald Trump could lose. And if they think that that loss is illegitimate, I, I think we should just be prepared for them to feel the way anyone would feel if they, they think that what Donald Trump said was true, that the election right. was stolen from them. We've been listening to him for six months tell us that he's going to try to steal the election. Right. I mean, it's just been very straightforward about it. His, his, his literal argument at the Republican National Convention was there are two outcomes, an outcome where I win and an outcome that's illegitimate. There's no way we can lose, he told his people. There's no way we can lose unless they steal it from us, meaning the left. Right. We'll see what happens. But I don't think that, you know, Donald Trump doesn't do something consistently over many months, stay on the same message over and over again if he doesn't intend to follow through on it. Right. You know? Exactly. Um, I'll I'll end with this last question, which is that every time there's been a proxy war where Donald Trump's name was not on the ballot, but other Republicans, you know, were on the ballot. Mm -hmm off-year elections, midterm elections, local elections, state-level elections, special elections, by-elections, anything there's been a way where there's been a place where voters have been given a choice to vote on Donald Trump and Donald Trump's policies by proxy because they could vote for a different Republican. Mm-hmm. Republicans have gotten their asses handed. Right. Them. You know, the clock's cleaned for four years. So it would be a strange thing. If you combine that with the data, it would be a very strange thing for Joe Biden to lose given the trend in the trajectory, right? So if we end up there, you know, Joe Biden wins, maybe wins decisively, maybe wins really big. You still are going to have a president who's faced with a very, with at least some, something like 40% of the country that's going to feel as though that it was a, it was a conspiracy, that mm-hmm. it was a coup. You know, all of the Trumpists, all of Trump's people will still be out there saying this was not a real election. This was bogus. It was phony. It was rigged. It was stolen. And Trumpism will still be alive in the Republican Party. And we'll still have a pandemic to cope with. And we will still have systemic racial injustice in the country. I mean, this is the optimistic outcome. Joe Biden wins, right? It's still like, think, just imagine like what it's, what it is to be Joe Biden and have all of that on your plate starting in January. Obviously for a lot of people, that's the preferable outcome, but do you have a lot of confidence that Joe Biden, the people around him are up to the challenge of governing 
given all of that? Well, I think we don't have a choice but to have confidence in Biden being up to the task of governing. And I think, I actually think if Biden wins, the transition becomes the, the biggest story of the Trump presidency because Bush won after the recount. The big, you know, scoop was that they'd taken a few W's off the keyboards. I mean, there could be dead Russian hookers uh, trapped in the basement of the West. I mean, this president has been lawless. This president has been willfully, um, you know, trying to move the levers of the Justice Department, the CIA. I mean, I think it'll be the most riveting transition in in American presidential history. And I think that it'll call on people to take jobs that maybe thought they were done with government. And I'm not saying everyone has to be old, but it'll call on people from other walks of life to try to, to unite the country. It'll call on a big sort of cultural effort to bring the country together. I mean, Joe Biden has run on uniting the country. He hasn't run on punishing Trumpism. He just hasn't. So I think there'll right. be a big fight on the left about how far to go. In, and, and I think Biden's instincts, and this may be an unpopular thing to say, but I think Biden's instincts will be to let the country heal. And I think a lot of Democrats yeah. want to hold Trump and his family accountable for crimes that yes. they've committed them. So I think the story changes dramatically. And I'm not saying it's going to be an uplifting one, but I, I don't. I just I don't know that we have a choice as a country. If, if, if Joe Biden wins, we have to try to get back to sort of some equilibrium and I would just say what I said at the beginning, that he's constantly exceeded the expectations of the media, the Republicans, and the Democrats. And, and I guess I would hope that he'd continue to do so. Nicole, you are, uh, I, like, we've already gone over time, and I apologize for taking you a few minutes past when I said I was going to let you go. It's like, I just never want to stop talking to you. I like, know. You're the it's best. Such a, like, You're the best it's bestie. Like, I mean, now I, mean, I feel like I'm going to cry about just the country and the, the situation we're in. My, my poor son's in there taking himself to remote third grade. The dog's barking. Mike's trying to work. Um, yeah. It's such a crazy Which is thing. why I need to let you go. You need to go manage that, <laughs> well, that I chaos. I don't know that I improve any of those four um, swirling pots. But um, but it really yeah. is true. Like I could just basically like, I, I feel like we were in this like nonstop kind of infinite conversation know, and we cauldron. just kind of dipped into it. Decided to record a little bit of it here, but I could like, I really could like, I'm, I think about the rest of my day and I'm like, what would I rather do? Go face the rest of my day or just like sit on this Zoom with I you? Know. I'd rather just sit here and talk to you for a little while I longer. Um, well, we'll do it some more. We should <laughs> do it. I'm going to need it. I'm going to need it this week. And, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll update this on a Wednesday morning. Yeah. <laughs> Nicole Wallace, thank you for uh, taking the time. Love you. Love and you, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Bye, sweetie. Helen Highwater is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Nicole Wallace for being on the pod. If you like this episode of Helen Highwater, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. A nice one, please. Helps people find out what we're doing around here. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Helen Highwater. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roden handle research. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 